I hold in my hands an absolutely fascinating book, which I'm sure many of you would thoroughly enjoy as I have. I'm actually still finishing up this wonderful, intriguing book called Confessions of an Alien Hunter, A Scientist's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And the author is Seth Shostak. He is a senior astronomer with the SETI Institute. And uh, he has uh, spoken about this for quite a long time, uh, particularly in his own weekly radio show, which is called, intriguingly, Are We Alone? We hear about the uh, effort which has been underway for decades now to uh, try and detect the, uh, the presence of uh, intelligent beings on other worlds, and in particular, to try to detect whatever signals they might be sending out uh, to, uh, to the rest of us. And uh, it is something about which we have all kinds of misunderstandings and uh, misassumptions, and uh, those are, are very carefully corrected in the pages of this truly fascinating book. It comes to us from National Geographic, and I'm very excited for the next few minutes to talk with author Seth Shostak, again about his book called Confessions of an Alien Hunter. Seth Shostak, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you very much, Greg. Really happy to uh, have you doing this. I mean, I think this book is a perfect example of of a book which does the public such a rich service by correcting a lot of the misunderstandings that we have about how this kind of work is done and maybe why this kind of work is done. Maybe touch on a few of the, the, the misunderstandings that so many of us in the public have about all this. Well, I think that uh, the, the public to begin with indeed does have some idea of what this is all about because they've seen countless movies and television shows about aliens. Aliens are, after all, really in these days with Hollywood. I think that's because the Soviet Union collapsed and they kind of lost an easy source of bad guys. So, you know, aliens can sort of fill the role without asking for residuals or something. Uh, but, you know, the public, poll after poll has shown that the public believes that we share the universe with, with other beings. Uh, the, something like 80% of the public believe that. Uh, roughly half of those believe that some of them are visiting the Earth. And uh, so they, they figure that we're investigating UFO reports or we're looking for, you know, ways to send rockets to other worlds and so forth and so on. We don't do any of that. Uh, some of the public thinks that uh, we're doing what we are doing, which is doing what Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact, trying to find the aliens at home, if you will, by uh, listening to their radio shows. And we are doing that, but they don't have much of an idea of how it's done. They think we sit around with earphones. Hmm. Well, in fact, that's uh, one of many intriguing things that you tell us about is that in, in, in some respects, what you detect isn't audible. Or, I mean, it's, it, it isn't something you are listening to in the sense that you know, a bird watcher is out in the woods listening for the sounds of, of bird calls. Um, this is listening of an entirely different nature, correct? That's right. And, and that's simply demanded by the fact that you know, the aliens, if they're out there, they... None of them ever sent us an email or, you know, a fax saying, look, uh, check us out on 1260 uh, kilohertz on the dial and, you know, that kind of thing. We don't know where to point the antennas. We don't know at what frequencies to be listening for their signals. And, of course, we don't know what kind of signals to listen for. Well, that's a lot of unknowns. But on the basis of what we do know about astronomy, the construction of the universe, what makes sense from, if you will, a technological point of view, we can kind of guess on some of these things, and we try and do that. But... You know, anybody who saw the movie Contact may recall that Ju Jodie Foster just 
you know, when she was trying to pick up the alien, she just sat on the hood of her car with a pair of earphones, waited about 20 seconds, and then she heard something. Well, I wish it were that easy. Because we don't know where on the dial to listen, we listen to hundreds of millions of channels at once. I mean, I guess this is a man's dream. No longer do you, you know, frustrate your wife by flipping through the channels. You listen to a couple of hundred million at once. or Watch them, I suppose. But, you know, you can't do that with earphones. It's all automated. It's done by computers and that sort of thing. So, in some sense, maybe it doesn't look quite as romantic as in the movies, but it does make the experiment a lot faster and more efficient and gives it a greater chance that we'll hear something. Hmm. Help us understand when you do have that antenna pointed up into towards the sky and are taking in uh, material, if we want to call it that, um, how much is there and and the process by which you have to sift through what is supposed to be there uh, to detect what is not supposed to be there or, the, or something which would be sort of an unexpected sort of signal. What, what makes a, a given signal, uh, if we want to use the word suspicious or distinctive? Yeah, well, that's actually a really good question, Greg, because, you know, we've got these, these antennas are big. They're very sensitive. The, the, the electronics is really, you know, very good. This is not just your average, <laughs> I don't know, clock radio that you got by the side of your bed. This is really a very sensitive setup. And that means, particularly since you're listening to so many channels, that you pick up signals all the time. I, I sat down at the radio telescope we were using in, in Puerto Rico, the one people have seen in some movies, uh, at Arecibo. And we were getting uh, roughly every 10 seconds there was another signal coming in. Now, we have to sort all those out. Because, you know, radar down at the local airport or telecommunications satellites that are flying overhead, those are all producing signals. And, of course, we're not interested in those. Those are just our own signals. So how do we know if it's really ET on the line and not just, if you will, AT&T? What we do is we do some very simple tests. There's a whole laundry list of tests that would show that that signal's coming from one spot on the sky that's, you know, slowly moving across the sky the way the stars do because of the Earth's rotation. And, you know, that's a very simple but a very solid test because if it's a communication satellite or something like that, it'll be, you know, moving across the sky much faster. If it's the radar down at the airport, it won't move across the sky at all, that kind of thing. So in the end, that's what it is. This is a signal coming from space. That's it. Hmm. And I guess that brings up an intriguing question, which is... um, You you talked at one point, I think, almost tongue-in-cheek a little bit about I mean, this is an effort, in a sense, to overhear radio shows on other planets, or I forget exactly how you put it, but in, in kind of kind of fun fashion. But in fact, are we? I, I suppose one of the things that makes this intriguing and challenging is that we might be detecting signals that, in a sense, are not signals at all. I mean, not intended for us, but that. Uh, in one way or another, could could indicate that there's something out there or someone out there. But this is not necessarily going to be picking up something which is in, in, intended to be communication for us or anybody else. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. I mean, you don't know what the nature of the broadcast might be. It might not be a broadcast at all. In fact, you know, uh, you, you might think, oh, well, we'll pick up their FM stations or their television stations or something. But I think anybody who pays attention to the broadcast industry knows that, you know, broadcasting might eventually be supplanted by you getting WGTD, you know, via a fiber optic into your home or or a direct broadcast satellite or a cable or something like that. And you might not have these 
big red and white towers on the hills outside of town that are broadcasting all this power into space because that's you know that that's ineffective or rather it's effective but it's inefficient in terms of the energy being used so you know the aliens may have moved beyond all that and if you pick up a signal it might be because this is just a radar that they've got on looking for comets that might otherwise ruin their whole day or it might be that they're broadcasting the weather report that they're a part of the galaxy because they've you know spread out a little bit i mean you don't know we've only had radio for a hundred years what will we be using radio for a hundred thousand years from now they might be at that level you don't know what purpose of the broadcast and it might have nothing to do with you but if you pick it up irrespective of the purpose at least you know one thing and that is there's somebody out there clever enough to build a radio transmitter and that's a very interesting thing to discover i think most of what we're talking about thus far is something which uh is known as radio astronomy can you explain that term to us yeah it is in a in a sense a form of radio astronomy uh, astronomy, and in fact, in an earlier life, <laughs> that's what I did for a living. I mean, I was a radio astronomer, and I studied galaxies. In other words, I studied natural phenomena. Radio astronomy uh, was actually kind of invented by a fellow in, uh, in in Illinois, just outside of Chicago, in the 1930s. He he took a backyard antenna and he pointed at the sky, and he was able to sort of map out the Milky Way, not by looking at it through binoculars or a telescope, but by measuring radio waves that were being produced naturally by the cosmos. It turns out that, you know, hot gas, cold gas, uh, a few stars, most stars don't make very much in the way of radio waves, but some do, uh, galaxies, they all produce not just light, we're familiar with that, we see the pictures from Hubble and so forth, but they also produce radio waves. And by studying the radio waves rather than the light, you can learn uh, other things about the universe that you didn't know. For example, you can learn how old the universe is by studying radio waves from the sky. Now we know it's, you know, like 14 billion years old, been that long since the Big Bang. That's, that's a number that's very hard to determine unless you study the radio emission coming from space. So that's called radio astronomy for the obvious reasons. And that's a discipline that essentially you know, began to flower after the Second World War when we had the technology that would allow us to do this. So radio astronomy does not necessarily and by no means inherently is concerned with kind of the matter of is there life on other planets, and can we somehow connect with them and communicate with them, and so on? I mean, I, when, I think when people see that term, they might possibly jump to that conclusion. That would be an erroneous conclusion. I mean, one could be engaged in radio astronomy without any interest whatsoever in the possibility of, of, of beings on, on other worlds. I mean, it, it isn't necessarily about that at all. No, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Radio astronomy is indeed just another branch of astronomy. I mean, there are other branches like infrared astronomy or ultraviolet astronomy or gamma ray astronomy, what X-ray astronomy. These are all just other ways of studying the universe, the natural processes of the universe, and the, the people doing that might or might not have any interest whatsoever, as you say, in whether there's any life beyond it. That's a different discipline. Now, I work here in California at something called the SETI Institute, S-E-T-I. It's almost my name, actually, Craig, but... Yeah, it, and that stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and, and that is an, an endeavor that's focused on this, if you will, much more narrow question, but a very interesting one. Uh, in addition to what might be out in space in terms of quasars, pulsars, galaxies, planets, all that stuff, could there be worlds that have cooked up life, and not just life, not just biology, not just pond scum on distant worlds, but life that's as sophisticated, as complex, 
uh, as intelligent, in whatever you may think of that term, as we are. And so it's a very specific question. And you are using, at least I think primarily, the tools of radio astronomy towards this specific end. That's right. And, and in that sense, it's completely analogous to somebody using a microscope to uh, you know, do cancer research. There's a lot of things you can do with a microscope, but that, that's a particular application that uses that technology. We're talking with Seth Shostak. We're talking about his book, Confessions of an Alien Hunter, A Scientist's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. We have danced around a rather important question, which I think we need to really take aim at right now. And that is the, the assumption that this is possible and the assumption that a lot of people make that it's even likely that there are intelligent life forms on other worlds and that if we make the kind of efforts which you are undertaking we might connect with them early in the book i think chapter one at one point you write uh there is good and growing reason to expect cosmic company <laughs> a really poetic way of saying that uh that there is good reason to think that uh that we are not alone in the universe summarize for us uh what you think the most compelling reasons are to believe that well, this is what I think are, are, are indeed, you know, the incentives for believing that we do have cosmic company. To begin with, what we've learned in the last dozen years, and when I say we, I mean the astronomical community, they found planets around other stars. Yeah, we lost a planet in our own solar system. You know, Pluto's no longer a planet. That's a semantic difficulty. But, but we have found that other stars have planets, too. When I was a kid, you know, back when they invented paper or whatever, when I was a kid... Uh, we didn't know whether other stars had planets. I mean, most people sort of assumed they did, but that was an assumption. That's not science. You know, it was the real data. Now we have real data, and in fact, if you talk to the people who find these planets, and more than 300 have been found so far, um, and say, look, if you had perfect telescopes, what fraction of stars do you think actually would turn out to have planets? And they say, oh, well, maybe a half, maybe three quarters. Well, to an astronomer, a half is the same as all. Right? There's hardly any difference there. Okay? So that means... In, in a galaxy with a few hundred billion stars, there are probably a trillion planets. Now, that's one thing we've learned just in the last dozen years. That's, in a sense, news. But it's good news, if, if, at least if you're looking for life in space, because it means that there's at least a lot of real estate out there. Here's another fact for you that many people may not be uh, fully aware of, and that is that research into the history of life on this planet has shown that the first life on this planet uh, sprung up at least three and a half billion years ago, maybe four billion years, and the Earth is only four and a half billion years old. So that means, essentially, very shortly after the Earth was born, it was formed, as soon as it cooled down a little bit, there was life. And that suggests, it doesn't prove, but it does suggest that life is not a very difficult thing to get going, because it didn't take very long on this planet. It didn't take billions of years for life to appear here. It just appeared right away, and uh, that's suggested. That's suggested. So for these reasons, we think there might be a lot of life out there. There are, of course, some scientists who do not make that same assumption, who believe that, yes, you might have all these planets, but, but that does not mean that any of them are likely to be inhabited in the way that our planet is inhabited, that that, in fact, is, is a big leap to make, and that people who make that leap are not thinking clearly. Um, What's your response to the skeptics who uh, challenged that assumption? Well, of course, you have to admit they could be right, because we haven't proven that there is life out there. I mean, not just intelligent life, 
We haven't found pond scum out there yet. Right. Know? All right. But, of course, I bet all these guys a cup of coffee that we will within the next two dozen years. I don't, I don't bet them more than that, but, but I will bet them a cup of coffee. But in the end, of course, you either find it or you don't. But what I would say to them is this. Look, um, you know, whenever we thought we were very special in the past, I mean, think of Aristotle. He figured the whole universe revolved around the Earth. Well, that was wrong. Uh, we used to think we were in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. That was wrong. We used to think the Milky Way galaxy was the only galaxy. Well, that was wrong. So every time we thought we were special, it turned out we were wrong. So there's a little bit of historic precedent there. But I think that the, the important thing to say is this. You, you could be a skeptic and say, you know, I'm sorry, but we're the smartest things in the universe. But there's no way to prove that. There is, however, a way to prove that that's not correct. All you have to do is pick up a signal, and you will know that, doggone, we're not the only kids on the block. And so that's why you do the experiment, because there's no way to prove that we're alone, but there is a way to prove that we're not. Hmm. And it's intriguing. Uh, at some point, um, I wish I could find it, because you, you, you say it so well, it's the idea that um, it may be a long shot. I mean, that even if, even if somebody is out there, it is, it's possible that we might not ever find them, or they might not find us, I mean, across these vast reaches. It could be possible not to connect. But if we don't try... We absolutely will not connect. I mean, I mean, to not even make the attempt assures us that we will never connect with beings if they are out there. Yeah, I think that that's true. I mean, it's always possible we'll stumble across them some other way inadvertently. But I mean, it's sort of like uh, I think an analogy I may use in the book, indeed, is when they were sitting around a couple of hundred years ago in Europe discussing whether there might be a big continent at the bottom of the globe. Right, this so-called Antarctic continent, although they didn't call it that at that time. I think they called it the Great Southern Continent or something like that. And you could sit around and have as many beers as you wanted discussing this and argue back and forth. But in the end, you know, you're never going to you're never going to settle that question by having another beer. The only way you're going to settle that question is by building some wooden ships as, as they had at the time and sailing southward and, and and going to look, doing the experiment, in other words. And this is really, I think, completely analogous. We we can sit here and argue forever about whether it's likely there's life or not. And, uh, you know, those arguments might or might not convince you. But if you actually do the experiment, at least there's some hope, some chance that you'll make a discovery. And then at least at that point, you'll know the answer to the question. So let's, let's ask you then about the, the question of, of expectations. And uh, for you as a scientist, uh, how do you have to enter this work uh because i think it's i mean i think we've all watched bad documentaries on television that have begun from day one with the assumption that something is true and that everything that's gathered and every word that is spoken is is just to to further bolster that that claim that aliens are coming down here on earth and abducting people for instance if that i mean if the people that put that program together really believe that i mean you can construct something that that seems to to demonstrate that when in fact it it doesn't or it certainly doesn't prove it uh a, a scientist in a sense we assume needs to enter whatever undertaking they're they're doing with something sort of resembling a blank slate or at least with 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 the um, committed to the idea of taking in whatever data comes to them through the clear glass of of objectivity, um, 
Is that difficult uh, when you might really believe that there is somebody out there? I mean, how do you how do you kind of sort that out maybe on a psychological level to properly interpret whatever it is that uh, you are taking in at the SETI Institute? Well, you know, you touch on an interesting point, Greg, because, you know, I, th- I think that a lot of people have this view of scientists that's probably been heavily colored by uh, Hollywood. There's a bunch of sort of bald-headed, nerdy-looking guys running around in white lab coats cl- uh, clutching a clipboard or something, you know, uh, who don't have any doubts and, and are, are in some sense not human in the way that your next-door neighbor is. Well, that's not true, of course. I mean, scientists are just another another part of the population, like, you know, tax advisors. That's all they are. But And that means that they have certain personal beliefs. In this case, I mean, people ask me all the time, do you really believe that there are aliens out there for you to find? You're doing this experiment. Do you believe that? And of course I do, because if I didn't, I wouldn't do this job. It's not that, you know, it's not that remunerative. It's not that lucrative, okay? But belief is not so important in science, except that it gets you to perhaps do an experiment that otherwise you might not do. That belief motivates you doing the experiment. But on the other hand, when it comes to looking at the data and deciding, you know, have we found ET or not, you're pretty darn objective because you know in science that if you make a claim to have discovered anything, really, whether it's ET or whether it's you know, a pulsar, a quasar, what's going to happen is, you know, there are going to be 50 guys out there around the world who are going to try and prove you wrong. That's the nature of science. It's all skepticism, right? And they're going to try and show this guy just didn't realize that what he was looking at was interference from his own equipment or it was a software bug or whatever, okay? So that's a, you know, that, that, that's a real come-to-Jesus moment for you when you realize that these guys are trying to prove you wrong. So if you go out there and you make the claim that we found something and this is proof that we have some cosmic company, doggone it, the data better support that. And they might, and they will, they'll go out with their own antennas and try and confirm what you did. And if they can't, well, you're not going to get that Nobel Prize. It's, it's that simple. So it's, you know, this, this honesty is very rigorously enforced. Well, you've touched on exactly the matter. I wish I would have said it as well as you just did, the fact that science on one level is all about skepticism. Or, or there needs to certainly be a healthy dose of skepticism. And I guess that's kind of the question that I have is uh, for you as someone who really believes that there is somebody out there, um, where is, where for you is your own skepticism? I mean, it's not just the skepticism of other scientists out there and or journalists, but doesn't there need to be some skepticism within you and your colleagues as you interpret this data? Well, there is. I mean, you know, I, I guess that manifests itself in a couple of ways. To begin with, you know, I get lots of communications from the public. Um, I, I, every day, I suppose, every other day, I get an email or a phone call from somebody who claims to have seen the aliens here on Earth, right? They've seen something in the sky, and, and clearly, from their point of view, it's not aircraft, it's not balloons, it's, it's a UFO that's actually an alien craft and so forth. And I, I tend to be skeptical about that because I've heard so many of these stories, and yet, if I go down to the, uh, you know, the local science museum or I go down to you know, Chicago, look in the Museum of Science and Industry, or go to the, any of the universities, you know, there aren't, there's no evidence stacked up there that this is true. And there would be if it, was, you know, if it was actual, I think, if it was compelling evidence. So there's a certain skepticism about people who claim, yeah, there are not only aliens out there, but they're visiting Earth. 
right? I wish that were true. That would make my job a lot more interesting <laughs> if it were true. But, true you know, and maybe, it might be, maybe it would even prove my social life. I don't know. But in any case, so there's skepticism there. But in terms of our own experiment, which is, after all, looking for signals, we get signals all the time. We get signals every 10 seconds when we're at the telescopes. You pick up a signal, right? You've got these giant antennas. We're listening to 100 million channels at once. Of course you pick up signals. And, you know, and, and, and when uh, the media will show up at the telescope and watch what we're doing and turn on the, the beta cams and whatever, they get really excited when they see these things. Oh, my God, this is it. What's that one? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's this, this one? Is fine. You know, you guys have been looking for years, but the night we show up, you're going to find E.T. Hmm. Well, you get a little skeptical about that, too, because you do get signals all the time, and you don't get too excited. Your blood pressure doesn't really rise just because you found another signal. So, you know, you tend to be a pretty methodical guy. Say, okay, well, it, it could be E.T., but we've seen you know, interference before, let's check this baby out before, uh, you know, you, you begin to call up uh, your, your, your girlfriend and tell her that we found E.T. Let alone the New York Times. Yes. I, yes. I, I, I was so intrigued by the uh, metaphor you used of, of uh, how for modern SETI experiments, radio signals are like graffiti, commonplace and mostly uninteresting. I mean, in, in, in that sense, that, that says a lot about the dedication it takes to, to be engaged in this work. Um, because in a sense, you are listening to graffiti <laughs> day and night, weeks and months and years at a time. Uh, yeah, well, it, no, that's true. That's true. I mean, there's just a lot of interference. You really want to move this whole experiment, actually, to the backside of the moon, where you don't have all this interference. Because on the backside of the moon, of course, you're shielded from all the you know, all the broadcasts and all the electronic noise that Earth produces. Uh, of course, we can't move this to the backside of the moon because uh, we don't have the money and the cuisine isn't very good there. So, you know, but that's what you'd like to do. So, yeah, a lot of it is sorting out the interference. Fortunately, you don't have to do that yourself. We have, you know, lots of software and hardware that will do most of that automatically. But, you know, at some point, a signal that passes all these sort of automated tests, at some point the computers just throw it back at us. You know, they say, well, look, you know, I throw up my... Uh, computer hands, as it were, and I don't know what this is. You better decide whether you want to spend any more time looking at it. Hmm. One thing, of course, uh, for those who are fervent believers, but not particularly from any sort of scientific perspective, but just sort of desperately want this to be true, and for whatever reason believe it to be true, um, are quick to make assumptions about, for instance, the U.S. military being maybe overly involved in all of this, or the possibility that journalists are somehow being a obstructionist and suppressing information, which of course is preposterous given that any journalist who could be part of this story would be the story of the century, the biggest news story of, in, in history. Uh, that's one of the things I appreciate about your book, is you really help us kind of sort that out, how various interested parties are looking at the work that you are doing, but... Uh, but not compromising it. I mean, you remain, in a sense, untouched by those outside forces, or that's the impression you give us anyway. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and it's because a lot of the public does assume that if we were to pick up a signal, for example, that the military or at least the government would intervene and shut us down and, and keep this news from the public because presumably the public couldn't handle the news. And that's, that's just blatantly untrue. I mean, a third of the public believes we're being visited, Seven, something like 7% of the public, I think, uh, believes that they're being abducted by aliens. You would think that if people were being abducted by aliens, that would occasionally make the nightly news. You know, if your spouse is routinely disappearing from the bedroom in the middle of the night, I think that that would, you know, you would notice that. You'd probably get upset about it, right? 
and, and yet, you know, people aren't rioting in the streets about the fact that uh, they believe we're being visited. So, uh, you know, they, this idea that the government would get involved is it's a nice idea, a romantic idea. It's simply not true. Whenever we've had signals that even to us look like they might be the real thing, I keep waiting for the government to show the slightest interest, and they never do. And, of course, one other intriguing thing brought about in your book is if indeed this is proven, something seems indeed to be the sort of radio signal for which uh, you have been waiting, then what do we do? Yeah, well, that's right. What do we do? Well, of course, what we do is we just keep trying to verify the signal. And then once we're convinced, you know, th- this is the real deal, then you would try and get as much information about it as you can. You would look at the nature of the signal. And presumably you'd be able to get enough money to go back and build a bigger antenna so that you could look for any message that's on the signal. Because, after all, in the end, you want to know, well, are they saying anything that we can understand? Is there some information here? But uh, I don't think there would be rioting in the streets. After all, they're very, very far away. They're not any danger to us just because we picked up their signals. The people listening to this show are not in any danger that you or I are going to jump into their homes and start giving them a hard time just because they tuned us in. So no danger, but a lot of interest. Right. It's an intriguing book and, of course, incredibly intriguing questions touched on in this book called Confessions of an Alien Hunter. It comes from National Geographic. Seth Shostak, I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg.